Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about Ukraine and its energy sector, looking at its past, current situation, and what the future might hold. Ukraine has significant natural resources, but due to the security environment, the political environment, it now faces significant underinvestment and great challenges. It also presents significant opportunity for commodity traders and for upstream oil and gas investors. To guide us through this challenging topic is Robert Bench. Robert is an independent oil and gas executive and has spent 20 years operating in the Ukraine. This is obviously a hot topic, and I should stress that all views are Robert's, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Robert, thanks for joining. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into energy and Ukraine, what's going on at the moment and the opportunities and the challenges, can you just frame up for us the sort of the 101 in terms of Ukraine's strategic location and and its energy resources? Ukraine historically was the gas region for the Soviet Union. Most of the large gas discoveries were in Ukraine. And then everyone knows about it now as a primarily as a transit country, which it very much is. It's uh, it's a midstream dream in the sense of there's a significant amount of storage. If it doesn't have the largest storage in the world, it's pretty close. And it certainly has uh, the largest storage facilities within European proper. And then it has a significant amount of uh, pipeline capacity anywhere between, I, I believe it's about 121 to 120 three BCM of gas that transits Ukraine on an annual basis, primarily from Russia. So there's always been a symbiotic relationship between Russia, Europe, with with Ukraine, certainly in the middle from a transit standpoint. I got involved in Ukraine in 1999 or 2000, the upstream sector. company I was working for had made an investment in a Canadian company by the time I was involved was a functioning bankruptcy. At that point in time, it's early 2000, Ukraine has zero money, lots of resources, and it's like 1950s with regard to the technology. You could hand dig a well faster than how they were drilling them. Wells were taking two, three wells years to drill down to just five, 6,000 feet. And I saw all the significant upside and realized, wow, we really need to continue with this, with this investment I went to committee and got it approved. And then six months later, management changed, the board changed, and they decided to get rid of the Ukrainian assets. And at that time, I was pretty young and extremely stupid and decided, well, I'm going to do this on my own. And I decided to do it on my own at that time. Basically, ran it out of my living room for about two years until I was able to get a private placement done in 2003. And we had good assets, but the underlying thesis to the whole business was the significant, vastly underdeveloped resources, upstream resources within Ukraine. You've got gas. You're alluding to oil there. Can you just very simply frame up for us? There's coal as well, and we're not even we're not even talking about the breadbasket that the Ukraine is. So just focusing on the energy side. Significant amount of resources across the board. Many refer to it, or it historically has been referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. It's geopolitically situated between Europe and Russia. 
It has a significant amount of agricultural resources. It has a significant amount of natural resources. Crimea was in, was taken over by the Russians so they could have a Black Sea naval port. There are significant resources in the Black Sea for oil and gas. There are two major basins that produce oil and gas. It's a very, very gassy country, and it needs resources. It needs capital to invest in. Yeah. So going back to the 2000s, you kind of had, there was a lot of ac- more activity then in the 2000s. You know, where was Ukraine in terms of, you saw liberalization of energy markets across Europe. How did Ukraine fit into that? What was its role as a, tr- a gas transitor, etc.? It has always been at the forefront, the leader with regard to gas transit. Most of Russia's production was coming through Ukraine and there would be periodic interruptions and that would mostly be economic interruptions, not real theft or anything like people like the people have read in the newspapers. With regard to liberalization of the market, there really wasn't much liberalization of the marketplace. The liberalization of the marketplace came mid-2010 through 2015, 2016, when NAFTA gas was no longer run by or controlled by one or two oligarchs it was splintered in the sense and they had very little control and you had a ceo at that time who was very much moving nafta gas toward better corporate governance it was when he became ceo it was the first time that taxes had ever been paid they went from having a loss of one to two billion dollars to paying one to two billion dollars in dividends to the country so he was lauded and, and, and very well respected because of that and for his movement toward the liberalization of the market. Also, too, for them to continue transit, they had to liberalize the market. What you did not see were investors coming in. There was nothing to invest in with that CEO of Naftagas. He was doing all he can to keep the assets at Naftagas, to keep all the value and upside there because in his view, he was going to have an IPO in a few years and he wanted to create a, a, the most valuable asset that he possibly could or the most valuable company that he could. While that was good for NAFTA gas, if they were successful in their IPO, it was bad for the country in the sense that they weren't able to get investment. They weren't able to get an increase in production in the country. And the overall market suffered in a variety of ways. One, you don't have investment coming into the country. Two, you have a you've basically created a state olig- state funded oligarch in the sense that this one individual at NAFTA gas is controlling everything and is telling prime ministers and presidents this is the energy strategy not the other way around and the concomitant effect is ukraine today is going to be anywhere from 10 to 12 bcm short in gas supply that's gas that they have to find from other sources. It's not coming from Ukraine, so they're going to have to purchase it in the form of reverse flow pipeline gas from Europe and or LNG from the United States and or other countries. Because obviously sort of the pivotal year here is 2013-2014, but prior to that you had this the, the rise of this organization. What did that mean for consumers in Ukraine? Were they paying subsidized rates? You have two markets in Ukraine. So from 2000 to 2013, you have industrial prices that are going anywhere from 
nine to fifteen dollars in MCF, and households retail is being subsidized by the government. Still continues to be subsidized by the government. But in 2013, after the former president fled for Russia, you had a new government come in, and they were doing all that they could to generate revenue. What they decided to do was to tax upstream producers at a an effective 75%, 90% rate. So we all left. You couldn't make any, what was the point? I mean, if you're paying a 90% tax and if you had a gas asset with a state entity, they basically were seizing your gas. So basically they killed the oil and gas industry, never really recovered. You had myself, I had two public companies then, and you had three of the oligarchs had companies and you had, I guess, about two different oil and gas companies with assets in Ukraine, everybody imploded. This is an environment where literally the month before we were making $14 gas and then they passed this law and now we're making nothing. And you're also in an environment of shale gases just going crazy here in the United States. So basically myself and my partner said, well, we're going back to Oklahoma. We're going back to Texas and we'll drill shale wells. And that's what we did. It was, there was absolutely no need to be in Ukraine to expose yourself to the risk, political and otherwise, that exists in the country. So that didn't change until about 2015. And at that point, you have, you know, the markets changed again, as you know, Baron, all of us. Ours is a commodity-driven business. And if you aren't very good at managing that commodity, uh, hedging the risk of that commodity, you're, you know, one year you're a billionaire, the next you're broke. And so 2015, 2016, we all started imploding here in the United States. And Ukraine is okay, but they can't attract any investment because everyone's having issues here within the United States. I haven't seen anyone since 2015 and that has come up to me and said, you really need to get me into Ukraine. How do I get an asset in Ukraine? How do, what, what do I invest in? The, the barriers to entry are extremely high. You know, it's a very closed environment. And again, what all of us are driven by is we see significant resources that are untapped for a variety of reasons. Primarily, again, technology and, and capital not being employed properly. Yeah, background of uh, Ukraine importing at the moment, I think it's like 80% of its energy. But so just because it's relevant to this story, bare facts, as I understand it, of that 2013, 2014 moment was essentially you had Yanukovych administration, Russia leaning, and you had for a variety of reasons, essentially, we won't call it a revolution, but a change of a series of political events that left with a, a European leaning government. And that was really sort of the, that was a momentous time in Ukraine, because it was at that point that the Russians come into Crimea, eastern Ukraine. Can you just frame that all up for us and kind of you know, the, the backdrop to certainly where we are today and Ukraine being back in the news. But I know you know many of those players. Kind of what was the, the bare bones of that story? The fall of 2013, our portfolio had about 1.3, 1.4 billion under management of oil and gas and power assets. And our strategy was to aggregate as much assets as we could. Ukraine was going to sign the EU Ascension Agreement that fall of 2013, that late October, November. And everything we were hearing internally was, it's a go, it's a go, it's a go. And so we were thinking, okay, 
they sign the EU ascension agreement, our portfolio is going to increase 10, 20, 30%. We sell everything because Ukraine's going to the EU. And my business partners were Ukrainians. So we had a very good feel as to the way the world worked. And I had a relationship with a few ministers and they were all telling me, we really need this, but it's going to be really hard to sign because we owe two to $3 billion in debt. I don't know how we're going to feed people. And that's ultimately what I've come to believe is why Yanukovych at the time that November did not sign the EU Ascension Agreement and decided to go with Russia. One, familiarity. Two, he was significantly beholden to Putin. They had a poor relationship, but you know, Russia and Ukraine have an extremely close relationship. And three, I'm sure he was convinced monetarily by Putin. You know, I obviously have no proof of this, but I'm sure he was convinced by Putin and others that he monetarily personally would would benefit significantly from not signing that agreement and staying with Russia. So he doesn't sign the agreement and we have rioting in the streets and the rioting in the we don't have rioting in the streets, we have protesting in the streets. The Ukrainians never I was down there literally every day and they were never rioting. They were protesting. Occasionally would get violent and there'd be violent on both sides too. But they it was extremely peaceful lots of ukrainians on the street in minus two minus 20 degree weather always out there always standing in line not throwing rocks nothing like that and like i said i was there every day most every day when i was in country and of course it got violent extremely violent one day like 120 people were killed and immediately the government changed those people were killed at 9 a.m and the oligarchs and their representatives were at the ambassadors uh they were at the U.S. Embassy that afternoon saying, okay, we're done. We've had it. We're, we no longer support Yanukovych. And you had Sergei Tahipko was, was put forward as the new president. And Tahipko blew it and said, no, I want to be president and prime minister. And so they got rid of him and put in this other guy, Turchinov. And all prior to, all during the Yanukovych administration, there was a significant amount of investment in the energy sector. So Ukraine implodes. Now, up to that point, I never really saw a lot of Ukrainian pride. Well, after that, Ukrainians I absolutely very publicly identified as Ukrainians. And, and Putin was extremely successful in uniting Ukraine into one country and having national pride. There never wasn't an opportunity for Putin to say, you know, we could roll into Ukraine and we'd be welcome. They have never been welcomed. In light of recent events, they are very much not welcome within the country, the Russians. So you have the change of government. The Russians do, or there is a separatist movement around in eastern Ukraine. You have the Russians in Crimea. Mm-hmm. That immediately changes the gas transit landscape and, in fact, the energy landscape overall. So what happened in regards to energy? What happened then? You have naphtha gas being consolidated and naphtha gas is doing all it can to not attract truly attract investment into the country so the country goes backwards from an energy standpoint an energy diversification standpoint you know i never spoke to the guy about it but my belief was he was trying to create as much value at naphtha gas as he possibly could what he 
did was turn an entire sector off toward investing in Ukraine. You also had a business that was run by finance people. You know, there weren't a lot of technical people. In fact, I don't think there were any technical people in the leadership of, of Naftagas, neither at the management level or the board level. There's no one that senior executives at oil and gas companies can actually work with with regard to, okay, what can we get involved in? And also in his defense, there's nothing to invest in. There's no, it's not like you can go and you can sign a simple farm out agreement or you can buy an asset from them. It's a state entity. It's extremely bureaucratic. You have to tender. There has to be an open tender process. There's a lot of transparency and governance that goes with this. And frankly, it's just not worth the time. There's not enough, there's not enough upside. There's not enough economics for you to be able to spend enough time in something like this back then. So people pass and they go focus on offshore Africa, Africa, et cetera, which is a shame because there are significant assets and extremely good and an extremely good workforce within Ukraine. There's just not been a lot of things to invest in. I think that's changing now. You've had new management and board at Naftagas, and there was a concerted effort to literally, we don't want to drill any more wells. We want everyone to do it for us. So he's taking the exact opposite approach. And it's going to take some time for, for that to be successful, but I think it will be because they're, they're very open with regard to access to data, being flexible with regard to new types of structures that people can farm into, both from an economic standpoint, from an operational standpoint. Yeah. Am I wrong in thinking, though, the role of Russian gas coming to the country basically, well, ceased? There's a minimal amount that comes through the country now, which will cease in 2024, 2025, I don't recall the number, I apologize, but that number that will cease the minimal amount of transit that they have contractually, I don't know what Ukraine is going to do, not only to replace that revenue stream, but to keep the pipeline as a viable functioning entity after that contract expires. Because this is gas is going through other routes and now Ukraine is having to import the gas that they are using from Western. They've had to import for quite some time. They just don't have the production increase they've been trying to get for seven to 10 years. And again, they haven't had one individual running the upstream portion of, of NAFTA gas that frankly knows what he's doing. One guy was a management consultant. Another guy was a management consultant. Another guy was a gas trader, business development guy. I frankly am all those things as well, and I would never put me in charge of an upstream business without a significant amount of good people around, and they didn't have that. It's just been a very, very poorly run sector, and that's been a big problem for the current president with regard to getting investment. But from a countrywide standpoint, it has been extremely upsetting that there has not been a cohesive energy strategy to develop the country, to get it independent. There hasn't been true leadership within the sector. It's really quite unfortunate. And the country is really suffering for it and will continue to do so over the next year or two because it's really, it's short gas, it's out of money. It's difficult. It's very difficult. So you've had 2015, let's say, you kind of had that coinciding with the commodity super cycle and the drop in prices and so forth. You had this investment seize up because of uncertainty before we move on to sort of today which again is 
increasingly uncertain, but there is this large opportunity there. What's the day-to-day in Ukraine with respect to the the Eastern separatists, the Crimea? Is this an issue that is hotly discussed, you know, is expected to change, or is it kind of sort of it is what it is and you know and, and those those sort of boundaries are pretty much in stasis you know what sort of the the approach there my whole general philosophy is i i work with ukrainians in ukraine i don't spend a lot of time speaking to people in europe or people in the united states about ukraine because they're not my target audience my target audience is the ukraine or my clients are other ukrainians ukrainians don't give a damn eastern ukraine and crimea it's not a daily conversation. That's still Ukraine referring to both. And no one thinks that it's a bunch of separatists running around creating issues for the Ukrainian military. We all know that it's Russians, both in Crimea, well, obviously Crimea, but in eastern Ukraine. We know that that's Russia that's invaded Ukraine. They hold no illusions that this is something else. This is Putin exerting his will upon Ukraine. I don't meet many Ukrainians that believe that Putin will actually invade. I think that's a talking point to get the United States and Europe focused on the issue at hand. And I, for one, personally have been extremely disappointed with prior administration's response to Ukraine. And yeah, I get it. It's difficult. It's far away. We've had the Afghanistan war, the Iraqi war. And my view is, this is Ukraine, this is Europe, this is defending (laughs) the NATO border. I mean, you can't have the Baltics, Poland, and Romania, NATO countries, having a war in Ukraine. You have to defend Ukraine. You have to provide it with offensive and defensive weapons. And we have not done that. And And frankly, we still continue not to do that. It's become even worse now because hybrid war very much exists. And Russia has spent the better part of 20 years corrupting broader Europe with money, if anything else. You have a significant amount of money and cheap gas going into Europe. Nord Stream 2, if you're a German, yeah, you want it. It's more cheap gas coming to Europe, not transiting Ukraine. And most Europeans don't give a damn about Ukraine. Obviously, they care about their own country and they care about not, you know, not having to pay a high gas bill. And they equate Ukraine and Russia with the issues there as a higher gas bill and it's somebody else's problem. You know, Ukrainians are very pragmatic about it. Again, they don't believe that the Russians will invade. And frankly, I don't know why he would. It's an He can control it economically. Why would he want to take it at the same time? Invading Ukraine cuts him off from the economic system. It cuts Europe off from gas, yes, but I think that's a road, ultimately, that's too expensive for Putin to go down. It's a lot easier to mass troops all along the border, Ukraine and Belarus, Russia, with regard to eastern Ukraine. You have control of the pipeline system. You can continue to move more troops and move more logistics toward the toward the border to threaten Europe and essentially get what you want. And I think that's what you have happening here now. So... I think that's a pretty clear view on that. So we're we're in a landscape now of political uncertainty aside, uh, as hard as that is, especially given the headlines, you have rising prices in energy, you have incredible spikes in certainly hydrocarbon energy in Europe, and you've got a country there that is 
pro-Western looking and has significant resources and has suffered from a lack of investment. What is the situation today? Do you see that investment coming? I mean, I'm just thinking of our audience here with on their doorstep this significant opportunity. So what's happened from a macro environment standpoint, it's never been worse. I see Nord Stream 2 happening. And yes, there'll be lots of little battles won here between now and approval time, but it will be approved. And I believe that at that point, Ukraine and the Baltics are truly shut off from gas supply and prices will continue to increase in the Baltics and in, your, and in Ukraine. There will be some reverse flow of gas within to Ukraine and to the Baltics, but not enough to bridge the shortfall that exists. And as I mentioned earlier, Ukraine is truly 10 and probably closer to 12 BCM short with regard to supply. It's 10 BCM short today, but they're not spending any additional money to increase drilling. They have, they're very short on equipment. They haven't been procuring any new supplies. When I hear that, I hear another one to one and a half BCM of, of gas that's not going to get produced and or developed, which means that there's, they're, they're 11 to 12 BCM short year over year with regard to production. That means that there needs to be additional gas sourced for Ukraine. Ukraine typically trades a TTF, TTF, well, Ukraine internally is TTF plus. So clearly you want to buy gas at the border, TTF minus, and then sell it at TTF plus. So for your clients here on the commodity side, they need to know that there's really two traders. The major traders in Ukraine are Naftagas and JE Energy. They supply a significant amount. I think between the two of them, it's about $16 billion worth of gas that they trade. And then you have smaller firms and you have a lot of firms accessing the storage capacity of Ukraine, but not trading, you know, importing and exporting. There's really no one that's doing that. There's one firm did a cargo and the rest is of, of LNG and the rest is a reverse flow that's done primarily by by naphtha gas. I, when I was in Ukraine, I got approached by seven different companies and it was seven on the Friday, the, the Friday before I left. All of them saying, where are we going to get gas from? Can you get LNG from the United States? And the answer is yes, you can, you can get gas to, in the middle of uh, July of next year, you can pipe LNG from Lithuania to Poland. You certainly have the possibility of LNG from Poland. They're not very eager to do that on a short-term basis. You can reverse, sorry, you can swap volumes from the Netherlands, Belgium. If you can get it to Europe, you can get the volumes to Austria. You can virtually swap those volumes. You have Croatia as an opportunity. And anything from Turkey, Turk Stream or anything like that is too far. It's uneconomic. So this is, there is a significant amount of opportunity for LNG cargoes from the United States, the United States being the number one place they wanted because of the political influence that comes from that or the political capital that would come from that. And then they're also looking toward, we're getting US LNG that's gonna attract US investment. We need investment into the sector. So that splinters out into two different groups. You have the larger companies that want the supply and want investment in the upstream sector. And then you have the smaller groups that just want the supply. And then you have a few 
that are taking a very long view, and that is the most readily accessible form of gas, the cheapest form of gas, is where? The United States, Africa. How can we get LNG? How can we get gas to Ukraine? Because we can't get it from Russia, and we can't get it from Central Asia because Russia controls the pipe. And that's a real opportunity for people with a balance sheet is buying gas assets in the United States, buying gas assets in offshore Africa, and having that shipped as LNG into one of the terminals that I discussed. And that's something that, uh, admittedly, I was a little bored in September, and now I'm overloaded with people wanting to move forward on that in that process, on that basis. And then also groups that have a balance sheet, haven't been in the gas business before in the country, and now all of a sudden are saying, okay, how much for a cargo or two or 12 to start a business, and how much does it cost to get a trader or two or three or four to set up a back office, et cetera? How do we create an energy trading platform for ourselves? So there are people that are seeing this from an opportunistic standpoint. And I, from a Ukraine perspective, see that as a viable longer term business. But you, you know, as everyone on this call knows, you need to have a balance sheet for something like that. And then you really need to understand what you're doing in the country. And, and how do you get that? Because if you are going to start investing in the Ukraine, which as you know, there's a considerable upstream opportunity, there's a considerable trading opportunity. How do you get comfort operating in that environment? And that will then, you know, attracting that investment in what are the, the key things you need to be aware of have to be able to succeed in those opportunities? You have to view yourself as a force multiplier. So if you're hedge fund manager in New York or Houston or London, you're not going to put your 12 best guys in Ukraine. You're going to put two people in Ukraine and they're going to go out and hire five, six, seven people in Ukraine, Ukrainians. One person that knows the transit system really well. One person that knows how to trade between at the Slovak border or at the Polish border. You know, you need to have subject matter experts in specific areas, obviously, within the trading cycle, within the value chain, with the individual or two or three that you have sent to Ukraine to put this business together. And you that's how you put the business together. Every company that I have seen over the years that has gone to Ukraine starting with Marathon and going all the way down to some of the smaller businesses that have, have come to the country, they all failed. One, because they thought they could get something done sooner rather than later, something that they thought could take a, would take a month to four. Another reason they failed was arrogance. This is how we do things in Texas. And the general response was, well, then why don't you just go back to Texas because this is Ukraine. Uh, another thing was not understanding the bureaucracy and working through it. There's no such thing as a no in Ukraine. There's anything and everything is possible. You just have to find a way to do it uh, legally and working within the bureaucracy. And that takes patience and, again, humility. I don't see a lot of that from my Western colleagues that come to the country. And a lot of them are, you know, certainly with the larger companies, they're there for two, three years and they leave and they don't frankly care because they're only there for two to three years and they're going to go someplace else. You know, the guys that have been successful are the independents 
that have money at risk and they take it very seriously. And again, what I, the, the companies that have been successful are the ones that are those very simple things. They come in with humility. They don't, they, they recognize that they're guests. They're there to teach people how to build a business with them. We supply access to capital. We provide technical expertise. Basically, our role is to go in there with capital, put a business together, train people up well, and then lead, not sit there and micromanage, which some certainly at the beginning you have to do as you're training. But you come in, you lead, and you and you let the business that you put together work as a business. And if you're not willing to do that, you're going to get your ass handed to you. And there's lots of places where you're going to get your ass handed to you in Ukraine and any other emerging market. Yeah. So <clears throat> two final questions. One is, are you optimistic about the future of Ukraine and its energy sector? I am. I really like the direction that NAFTA gas is going in as of late. I view the the new CEO as very open to new investors and things happening in the upstream sector. Russia on the border, you know, horrible thing to say, but I view that as an opportunity set. And it's bearing out in the sense that gas prices are so high and there's no gas. That's that's an opportunity for somebody with a strong stomach. You know, again, I've been there for 20 odd years, the period with Poroshenko, no, no offense to the president, was probably the worst time because no one was investing in the country. We did have commodity issues outside the country, but there was just nothing to do. And there was no attempt to bring people in. That team spent a lot of time going after the former president's people and people associated with them and going after their assets. So you had a lot of people going after people with regard to corporate structures, and it just was completely unnecessary. And then with this current president, I haven't. there's been none of that in the energy sector. Very, very nice man, very transparent, very willing and open to having things happen positively for the country. So I'm very encouraged by him and his chief of staff. I mean, I'm very familiar with a lot of people that work for the president. And again, the CEO of Naphtha Gas, and I do have a lot of hope for the country with regard to the development of the energy sector. Their biggest problem is they're talking to nobody. They're running a process right now for upstream assets, and they've set very proper parameters to ensure that real companies show up. They've got two, maybe three real companies that have shown up, and that's it. It's sad because there's real opportunity there. And they, they're horrible at marketing themselves. There's a lot of upside there. There's a lot of opportunity. So final question, from a, a talent perspective, if you are building a team in Ukraine, do you have talent there? Just yeah. give us an understanding of the people landscape. You have talent there, and you have Western-educated talent that wants to be in the country to make a difference. And everyone under 40 is extremely normal, speaks extremely good English. Talent has never been the issue in Ukraine. We never lacked for talent on the ground. The biggest issue that we had with, with Ukraine was bureaucracy and access to capital, more than anything else. If you have a balance sheet, you are, you'd be shocked at how much you can get done within the country. And you can do it on your own or you can partner. You know, there are a lot there. The oligarchic groups 
as evil as they may sound, are not. You know, they, it's not, this is not Ukraine 2000. This is Ukraine 2021. And all the oligarch groups are doing all they can to be industrial groups, to not be perceived as oligarch groups, to be perceived as industrial groups, and to do normal business in and out of Ukraine. So you, and you have that transition happening now, which is extremely positive for Ukraine, uh, clearly for the oligarchic groups, but for them as well. And so finally, increasing tensions, clearly this sort of the West versus Russia. Do you see European Union, do you see the US as a matter of policy, promoting investment in the region and therefore making it easier for utilities, merchants, gas providers, whatever it might be, to get into the, you know, to, to help solve some of these issues as it pertains to their natural resources? No. I see industry doing it before they do. I see, we'll use LNG as the example because it's readily available. I see a Ukrainian group or someone else getting one or two or three LNG cargoes into the country and going to Kiev, Brussels, London, and DC and saying, we're doing this, we're bringing US LNG into the country. And that gets all more involved in the country. I tried doing an LNG trade with with uh, Ukraine two years ago, and there were two reasons to do it. One, Ukraine needed the gas. And two, the president very rightly was thinking to himself, I need to get the United States interested in caring about my country other than from me asking for things. Ukraine has always been viewed as a country that's asking for things and not giving anything. And in his view, I want to give. And by giving, it means I'm going to buy LNG from the United States. That gets capital investment in the country. That gets not only the energy industry invested in, but other industries invested in. Because the general thought was, if you're going to invest in energy in Ukraine, you can invest in anything in Ukraine and be successful. And that would very much get the former president very interested in Ukraine from a transactional standpoint. I mean, let's be very honest with each other. Our former president was very transactional. And he, and President Zelensky recognized that. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong either. Just he understood how to get our former president more interested in, in Ukraine. And that's what he was looking to achieve. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I do hope that you're, uh, I guess we'll, we'll find out relatively soon how, uh, how serious the situation is on the border. But, um, you know, I think it's a very clear message that this is a country with a lot of opportunity and needs a lot of support. And the commodity trading community and the commodity world in general has a, an opportunity and a role to play there. Very much so. You're very right. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.